0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to today's session on the future of work. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is uh, David Williams. I'm partner and head of employment at Campbell Little firm specializing uh, in employment uh, law. Um, thank you for coming today. I know it's gloomy out there. I know it's raining. And I know Jonas have been unpleasant. but I also know the, the economic environment is also gloomy with what's happening in, in Greece, in the European area and with the IMF. Um, The working assumption uh, for today's session is that there will be a future of work in some form. Um, Quite what form that takes. No one knows precisely, but we're going to to speculate um, on what we think is um, going to happen. And to that end, let's just run through the form uh, of today's session. Um, I'm going to start off with uh, Senior Associate with Kemp Little, Catherine Dukes, and we're going to talk about some of the legal challenges uh, that, are, um, that we think the, the work, um, working, are going to face. The employers are going to face in working arrangements. Um, we're going to put that in historical context. We're going to look at some challenges, and we're also going to look at some friction areas uh, going forward. We're then going to hand over to PwC. We're absolutely delighted and honoured to have. Uh, Matthew Thurgood and Matilda uh, Venter here, who are going to be telling us about the outcome of their, their survey and doing a bit of futurology, looking into the future, how uh, the employment relationship, how managing of employees is going to work. And that's going to be followed by Mark Skilton uh, from Capgemini. And Mark is going to be looking at how technology is going to play, play a part in facilitating the future of work uh, and making it possible to be more effective and efficient. I'm really looking forward to uh, to that session. At the end of the session, we're having a panel session, a question session, so if you have any questions on any of the topics, please save them for, for, from that. If you have any observations, if you have any experiences, we're, we'd be very, very grateful to hear about them. So let's kick off with um, the legal challenges aspect. Um, by way of introduction, we're going to start off by trying to put this in historical context. We're going to look at how the law has developed, what the trends are. Um, In particular, we're going to look at what happened before and after Lehman's, which we believe was a a seminal moment in the development of uh, employee relations, certainly in recent times. We're going to look at whether the employment laws are fit for purpose, whether they actually work in the modern era, where the difficulties arise. We're going to look at what the government is trying to do about it. It's pledged to get get rid of red tape, but can it actually do that? Is it actually going to be able to do that? We're going to find out. And then we're going to look at some of the battlegrounds, some of the friction areas that we think uh, are going to arise going forward. So let's start off with a chart. Um, and this chart depicts the introduction of legislation, employment-related legislation, over the last 40 years. Uh, you'll see pre-Thatcher in the black and white era. Um, there was the introduction of the 1978 Consolidation Act. That was the beginning of the modern unfair dismissal regime. We also had the race and sex discrimination legislation. Thatcher comes in, not too much changes, a bit of European legislation uh, in relation to 2P. She also amalgamates the the various disparate um, acts in the Employment Rights Act. And the idea of that was to make it easier for uh, employers essentially to, to operate and understand what their obligations were. So Blair comes in, and you'll see when Blair comes in there's a step change a whole raft of legislation is brought in, some of which is European-derived. The legislation that appears in blue is the legislation that comes from Europe and we have to put in place. And that continues right up to the coalition. You'll see uh, Nick and um, David Cameron stood there. They look like a two-headed monster, but it is two individuals. Um, And after them, we we had the legislation, which was the agency uh, uh, workers' regulations, (coughs) which essentially made it um, more important, uh, more, more expensive to employ agency workers and couldn't, I suppose, have come at a worse time by that. By the time it came in, uh, the world is in recession, employers are looking to save money, and the government is essentially making it more expensive to have agency workers. So what are the trends here? Um, I think there's a, a, a few trends to pick out. Um, I suppose the first one is that they're giving rights to the atypical worker. Fixed term workers are getting rights, part time workers are getting rights, they've changed the maternity leave rights um, three or four times in the last uh, 10 years. There is a proliferation of discrimination law. We started with sex and race, but now we have sexual orientation, age, and other types of discrimination. And the final point to mention is that most of the new legislation that comes in is being derived from Europe. We have to put it in place. The government's hands are tied. There's not much they can do about it. So when we talk about getting rid of red tape, that's one of the problems that we face. Catherine.
1: So aside from the trends in employment legislation, the other uh, place in which we've seen trends is pre and post the collapse of Lehman Brothers. So for us, the collapse of Lehman Brothers as employment (coughs) lawyers was a fairly seminal moment the day the world world of employment changed and it's probably useful just to pause and remind ourselves what the world was like before Lehman Brothers collapsed. Um, So obviously the economy was uh, increasing rapidly, salaries were (coughs) increasing rapidly, technology was starting to make an impact, so you had the introduction of blackberries and so on and as David has mentioned there was a lot of uh, workers who were tending to work in an atypical fashion, perhaps working from home. And Initially, uh, employers were sceptical about what has been described as shirking from home, Um, but that became more accepted and I think part of the reason for that may have been the competition for talent and employers seeing that they had to make some concessions um, to work-life balance and and flexible working. Um, Another trend that we saw was uh, the introduction of data protection laws and at first those were ignored, but as technology has advanced, the risks of data losses have increased and so um, that's increased um, issues for employers. Pre-Lehmann's we also saw um, a big increase in bonus type claims in the city and just an increase in legislation generally, so the employment tribunal started to struggle to cope with the amount of, legis- uh, of uh, case law and that really led to the high point in legislation. And the panacea of red tape, um, which was the introduction of the statutory dismissal and grievance procedures, which were intended to reduce the amount of employment tribunal claims which actually got to the tribunal by trying to flush out issues before they even got there. But actually it just hugely increased the amount of litigation because the legislation was so badly drafted that it ended up being a lawyer's paradise Um, Anecdotally, around this time, the courts tended to take a more sympathetic approach to employees, and one example of that is uh, the whistleblowing legislation which was introduced in order to um, protect employees raising health and safety concerns, but uh, subsequently through development of case law has ended up being used as a weapon by employees for minor uh, workplace disputes. So then we get to the collapse of Lehman Brothers September 2008 and looking back now it it seems hard to think that that was three years ago it seems much more recent than that Um, but that you know credit dried up at that time businesses were frozen and they needed to make immediate adjustments to their workforce and other structures and this was really the first time for many years that employers had had to even think about redundancies and had and they suddenly realized the cost of making redundancies the 30 or 90 day consultation period, uh, notice on top of that, and redundancy pay, including redundancy, uh, sort of gold plated redundancy uh, terms, which had been introduced in the good times. So they started to think about whether there were uh, any cost saving schemes which avoided those sorts of uh, liabilities. And in particular, there was an increase in employees working part time, taking sabbaticals or employers imposing revised remuneration arrangements and really in desperation many employers were forced to ignore laws protecting things like customer practice around enhanced redundancy payments, Um, there were some clever arguments about uh, age discrimination preventing employers from using uh, enhanced redundancy terms and also things like when changing terms and conditions of employment for employees, employers tended to uh, be forced to um, uh, avoid or uh, avoid or ignore the collective consultation obligations for doing that because they needed to make the change immediately. This led, in turn, to a litigation explosion and uh, increase in desperate claims, employees throwing absolutely everything in, including the kitchen sink. And then, in turn, anecdotally, employ- uh, the courts were much more sympathetic to employers in this circumstance. They could see the economic reality of what they had to do.
0: So that brings us on to um, some of the longest term trends uh, probably in Lehman Brothers. I suppose it brings us to the present day. What's what's happening at the moment? What are we seeing? Um, we are seeing quite an unwinding of quite a lot of part-time arrangements. Um, at the height of the recession, a lot of people agreed uh, to work part-time or were forced to work part-time. And <clears throat> that's continued for two or three years in the hope that things would get better. But things haven't got better. And now companies have a bit more money, and they have rationalized that situation in fact, the statistics from the tribunal for the last 12 months show that part-time worker claims increased by threefold in, uh, during, that, during that period. There's also been an increase in flexible resourcing. Um, many employers have been burnt by the recession, by employment rights, by unfair dismissal claims. And they are desperate to take a non-committed approach. What we're seeing is a lot of people having short-term employees who don't gain very many rights, certainly don't gain unfair dismissal rights, or go down the contracted route. Previously, they'd have gone down agency workers um, but that now is uh, slightly less appealing. Also seeing more flexible working, but I think what has changed here is, is the driver. In the good times, the driver was, you, need, we, there was a t- you, know, you needed the talent. How are you gonna get it? How are you going to appeal to get the best employees? But now we're seeing <coughs> it being driven by companies saying, well, you know, how, do we, how do we set ourselves up in the most cost effective way? If we have someone who is at home, we don't need an office. They can work at a laptop, they can work without any, any of the normal overheads. That's better for us. And it's been proven to work during the recession because so many people have started doing it. We're also seeing a bit of a shift in the balance. Many employers are starting to go for lower salaries and try and put in higher commission, bonus, uh, and share schemes. Um, I should say, with, with, with in relation to share schemes, many employees are actually a little bit sceptical. They're saying, well, it's sort of all very well having a share scheme, but if I work, for example, for a A smaller business. Will there be an exit? Will there be any money to buy this company? What's going to happen? I'd rather actually have have cash. So it's leading to a little bit of conflict. In terms of recruitment, um, the recruitment market hasn't dried up. It's continuing. But what we're seeing is that employers are targeting recruitment. They're going for the best possible people. They're going for the people who could bring business with them. And with that comes issues because they're often bound by restrictive covenants. They're often, sometimes breaching those restrictive covenants because they've been lured and quite in uh, with, 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 with quite lucrative incentivization. And as part of that, they're also sort of bringing data with them. It's so easy to take a client list or take some information and download it onto a memory stick, and that's become a really hot topic uh, over the last uh, 24 to 36 months. Um, and, and with that, we have had a development in forensics. You know, two or three years ago, it's quite difficult to find out what had been downloaded to a memory stick. Now, it's quite easy uh, to reveal what's occurred. We're also having, we're uh, seeing companies looking at sort of longer-term or structural changes to their business. Looking particularly at outsourcing and offshoring. Um, during the height of the recession, this, this, this market dried up. People were concentrating on immediate cost savings. Now they're looking at slightly longer-term measures. But one of the, the fallouts, one of the, the trends that's come from everything that's happened is that the sort of proliferation in portfolio careers. People have been forced to work part-time, people have agreed to work part-time, and they've started to use their at time to do different things. Sometimes they work in a completely different industry or a completely different career, but we're also seeing a bit of tension where they set themselves up in doing something that's quite similar, maybe for a little less money, and it gives rise to quite a lot of conflict in terms of loyalty. So next up, let's look at, (laughs) we've looked at um, what's happened with it, But let's put that in the context of the employment laws. And in particular, look at whether they're fit for purpose looking towards employment uh, in the future. Um, My answer to that is they're probably not. The unfair dismissal regime has been with us since 1978. That was a completely different time in the employment context. They're clunky, they're mechanical. There's uh, a few accepted reasons to get rid of people, capability, conduct, um, redundancy. But it doesn't really reflect the modern age where you have to evolve. You have technology advances to push a business forward. You're finding ways of trying to set different circumstances within that regime. They're also process driven, particularly poor performance. If someone's not performing, you, you wait a period of time, you give them an appraisal, it's not very good, only then can you start a poor performance process. You have to give them objectives, reasonable time to improve, reasonable support and mentoring. And at the end of it, you ter- if you terminate the employee, it's risky. They turn around and say, oh, you didn't do this well enough. You didn't do that well enough. And if they're successful with their claim, the claim for unfair dismissal, then they say, in a completely contradictory way. They say, well, actually, I was rubbish. So it's going to be impossible for me to get another job. So you're going to have to pay me lots of money. It becomes a malingerous charter. It's really frustrating. It's also cumbersome to change duties and responsibilities and other terms of employment. Unless your contracts say, look, we're going to evolve. Your job's going to evolve. It's quite difficult to get through. You have to weigh up. You have to have a substantial reason. You have to weigh up the upsides and downsides for the employer and employee. And you have to consult. And it's not a certain process, which is incredibly frustrating. And also the regulation itself you know the, the, the regulations that are on, on the whole side all aimed at protecting employees there's very little in any any legislation any regulation that really looks at promoting the employers interest trying to re- ensure that the employer remains competitive the rules have been slow to adapt to modern working methods we had to wait many years to get any guidance on home working from the health and safety executive or in relation to data protection. And there's pretty much nothing covering portfolio careers. And many small businesses, and and bearing in mind we're relying on small businesses to get together and help drive us out of the recession, but many small businesses are kind of ignoring what's going on They're saying, look, it's too complicated for us. We're gonna be an ostrich. We're gonna bury our head in the sand. That's the only way we're gonna get through. We're gonna just hope that no one sues us. And that's the only way we're gonna survive. And as part of that, the legislation makes very few allowances for small businesses. You know, it's all very well for a a large business to allow someone to go on maternity leave for a year, but with someone with just two or three employees, that can be problematic. And that's caused friction, certainly on a historical basis. Now, the government's also taking a restrictive approach to immigration. We've got the cap, they've tightened the rules. If you read the Daily Mail, you might think this is a brilliant idea. But what we're seeing is that people are coming to us and saying, I'd like to bring someone over. We need to bring someone over to take us forward. How do we do it? So we explain the rules to them. And they go, you know what? That's a bit tricky. So what we're going to do is we'll appoint we'll him. We'll just employ him somewhere else. He can work somewhere else these days. We've got technology. We'll, we'll put him in the country um, that he currently works in. So he'll pay taxes. So essentially, we lose out. The company is not as effective as it needs to be. And the, 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 the tax revenue is lost. And finally there's litigation. It's very easy to bring a claim. It's very easy to bring a claim which pretty much has no merit. There are very few consequences of doing that. You might get caught, but it's pretty difficult. And that's causing a burden (laughs) and threat to employers.
1: So the government is actually starting to recognise that employment laws aren't fit for purpose um, and that they need to help businesses in the recession, um, especially with red tape in the employment context. Although... Their hands are tied to some extent, or to a large extent, because of the fact that most of the legislation that's been introduced in recent years has come from the EU and is dictated to the UK by the EU, so we have no scope for amending that other than uh, just implementing it straight rather than gold-plating it, as we've done with, say, the CHUPI regulations. Um, So really the government's left tinkering at the edges. Um, And some of the recent announcements um, in the autumn have been Um, to try and make it harder to bring claims, um, to try and uh, alleviate that cost burden for employers by introducing fees for bringing an employment tribunal claim. The fees there are actually higher than it costs, or more than it costs, to bring a small claim in the small claims court, which is quite interesting and quite controversial. The other thing that the government has announced is that it's increasing the length of service for unfair dismissal from one year to two years. Now I would question whether that's actually going to make much difference because as we've seen from um, from employees who have less than a year's service at the moment, they'll they'll strain and struggle to try and bring a discrimination claim or a whistleblowing claim instead or or anything else that doesn't need a year's service. Um, So I I don't think that'll help to alleviate the burden. The other thing that the government has uh, announced is that there's going to be a moratorium for small businesses on new legislation applying for for the next three years. Um, so that addresses some of the issues David was mentioning about small businesses. In that context, in the last couple of weeks, um, a report or part of a report by Adrian Beecroft has been leaked to the press. Adrian Beecroft is a uh, venture capitalist and Tory party donor who David Cameron has asked to report on how employment laws should be changed from a business perspective. And the one and a half pages of report that have been leaked, which is basically the executive summary, suggests that Mr Beecroft thinks that we should remove the unfair dismissal regime altogether from legislation. Although he acknowledges in the, in the leaked report that the political reality is such that that's never going to happen. So instead, what he's suggesting is that a, distinct, uh, a distinction is made between fault dismissals on the one hand and no fault dismissals on the other. And so if an employer is trying to get rid of someone who uh, is a poor performer, they'll just be able to sit down with them, have a conversation and give them a redundancy payment and avoid the complex capability procedure that we have at the moment. Um, the other rumours that have been circulating about the Beecroft report are that Mr Beecroft first of all suggests abolishing the flexible working regime and secondly, um Breaks down some of the uh, maternity rights that are currently, uh, have recently been introduced, like the right to transfer your maternity leave to your partner um, after a certain period. Um, the bit of the, well, the leaked report that I've seen doesn't contain any reference to that, so I'm not sure where those rumours have come from, but um, that may have been why the report was leaked in the first place. Um, Nick Clegg has waded in on this, and unsurprisingly, being a lab Dem, I think he's tried to sort of water it down and say, Employers should be able to have frank discussions with underperforming workers and there should be this concept of protected conversations. Now I say that doesn't make any difference because employers are already free to have a frank discussion with employees about their performance although employers do find it difficult to do so and we already have without prejudice conversations which are protected conversations so I I don't think it's going to make any significant change. So let's move on
0: to some of the friction areas. Some of the, some of the friction areas that we're seeing now, which we think are um, going to continue in the future. The first one is recruitment at the beginning of the employment relationship and the impact, really, of the internet age, the social media age. Um, There's some research commissioned in, by Microsoft in uh, 2009 that was saying that you know 41% of employers are rejecting uh, candidates because, based on the information they found online, I, I would imagine that's, that's increased to 90%. Uh, over the last couple of years, you know, 8% uh, have concerns about how accurate the information is and whether they should be relying on it, but 68% don't bother to check. So lots of people are doing sort of tentative searches. They're finding bits and pieces out about people and they're making decisions uh, based on it, which is. Uh, potentially uh, quite dangerous. I actually had a client who didn't um, recruit someone because they looked them up on the internet and he had a a video of him tiling. It was a how-to-do-it video, tiling his bathroom. She decided it was a bit boring, and on that basis, (laughs) (laughs) she was a bit harsh uh, because I I thought it was a really good tiling job uh, myself. (laughs) Uh, So there there is a bit of guidance on this. The first one is the Data Protection Act, um, which basically says um, applicants should know what information about them is being collated. Um, the collating of the information co- covertly is unlikely to be justified. So you should really tell employees that you know once you get through a certain stage, we are going to do a few searches on you, and this is the sort of search that we will do. So you need some sort of policy to back this up. You mustn't collect more information. That's absolutely necessary. Um, and if you collect personal information, you, you mustn't um, do anything with anything that's irrelevant or excessive for these purposes. So that's the data protection guidance. You need a policy, but also bear in mind the discrimination aspects. If you are found to have looked at social media, at someone's website, and you find some sort of personal sensitive data, for example, something about their sex life or whether their sexual orientation, um, then if you don't appoint that person, it's possible that an inference of discrimination can be drawn, which shifts the burden back onto the employer, who will have to show there's no discrimination whatsoever. It's quite a high burden in those circumstances. So it's certainly something to watch out for. And I think this is going to be uh, a a real battleground in the future. And indeed, Germany has taken it so seriously that they have effectively banned uh, employers from doing social media internet searches for people uh, or certainly limiting uh, the impact of those.
1: So the next future battleground that we see is in the field of social media. And actually, I say future battleground, but really it's a current hot topic. Um, Twitter has 200 million users, 65 million tweets a day, And there are several key challenges for employers with social media. Um, Just looking quickly at a few, and then I want to draw on two in particular. Um, There are estimates that employers lose £1.38 billion a year from lost productivity through social media. Um, And there are other issues around employers being vicariously liable for actions of employees on social media, so undertaking discrimination or bullying, Another key issue is uh, monitoring and David's going to come on to talk about that in more detail but one thing I just want to highlight with monitoring particularly of social media is the rise of employees using personal smartphones at work so that makes it virtually impossible to monitor what they're doing. I just want to look at ownership and reputational issues in more detail as these are really the two key ones um, from my perspective in terms of employment law. Um, so, looking first at reputational issues. Um, sorry. The next slide, <laughs> sorry. David. Uh, just want to highlight two contrasting cases on employers using damage to their reputation to dismiss employees. First is the case of Taylor and Summerfield. And in this case, um, employees of Summerfield Supermarket posted a video on YouTube of them hitting each other with plastic bags, which is a strange thing to do. Um, They were subsequently dismissed and the employer, uh, for justification for dismissal, the employer said that it had suffered reputational damage. The um, the, um, claimants brought a claim in the employment tribunal and the tribunal decided that actually that dismissal was unfair because the YouTube video had only had eight hits. So to complain that they suffered reputational damage, particularly given that probably three of those hits were... The investigating officer, the dismissing officer, <laughs> and the appeal officer. It seems a little bit excessive. Contrast that though with the case of Pruce and Weatherspoons. So, Pruce was a pub, man- pub manager in Weatherspoons, and she got into an altercation with some clients, customers uh, in the pub. And then, while she was still at work, she posted some comments on Facebook about these empl- uh, customers. She assumed that her privacy settings on Facebook meant that those comments could only be seen by her friends but she was wrong and some relatives of the customers also saw the comments and made a complaint to the employer. Priest was subsequently dismissed and the employment tribunal held that the dismissal was fair in those circumstances. Uh, that a big driver for the employment tribunal's decision was the fact that Weatherspoons had a comprehensive social media policy. I think this case really highlights that it's important to have a policy in place that you can rely on in in case you're wanting to dismiss someone and you're trying to back that up in the employment tribunal as as a justification for dismissal. Moving on to look at ownership of social media and the contents of social media. This is really important in the employment context um, because social media is used to promote the employer, to build networks uh, and gain contacts to uh, promote the employer's business. So what happens when an employee leaves? Uh, in particular, this comes into its own sort of special focus around a Twitter account. A recent practical example of this is that Laura Koonsberg is a BBC or was a BBC uh, chief political correspondent, and she was a prolific Twitter user. So she had a Twitter account with 58,000 followers. She moved to ITV in the summer, and changed her Twitter account name from at BBC Laura Kay to at ITV Laura Kay, And there was absolutely nothing that the BBC could do to stop that because she didn't have any provisions in her employment contract preventing that. They didn't have a social media policy in place which prevented that. So just an interesting example of uh, if you've got high profile people who are tweeting on your behalf or you, th- you think they're tweeting on your behalf, you just need to be careful about what happens when they leave. Um, and that moves us on to who owns the contacts on LinkedIn. So those of you who use LinkedIn will know that when you um, change jobs and you update your profile on LinkedIn, it sends an email or, or a message to all of your contacts saying, Catherine Dukes has, has left Camp Little and joined X. Um, the <laughs> Sorry, David. It's OK. <laughs> just a little, little dream of mine. restrictive <laughs> yeah. um, no, no, covenants.
2: <laughs> anyway...
1: The mere sending of that message itself is not solicitation of customers and clients. So it's not protected by traditional um, non-solicitation clauses in or restrictive covenants in an employment contract. So there's really very little that the employer can do and there's very little law around this at the moment. The, the best thing, the most practical solution really for dealing with that is to have um, a restrictive covenant which is a non-dealing covenant so it prevents employees from having any dealings at all with customers and clients after they leave for a certain period. Um, I've also seen employers try and put provisions into an employment contract that says on termination we'll sit down together, go through your social media account and delete all contacts belonging to the employer. Which is fine in theory but in practice With LinkedIn, there's nothing to stop you re-linking in with those people a week later. So I don't think that's got any teeth. I think the best way is is the non-dealing covenant. And really just to emphasise, keeping an up-to-date social media policy, up-to-date with changes in technology and changes in social media is really key. And also counselling employees on what's appropriate to post.
0: Um, The next battleground we see is one I think is week. more employees are working in different locations around the world working in different ways, working from home, um, and, and on, on a flexible basis. Um, so what is the, the, the law around um, uh, monitoring? Well, I suppose the first point to mention is it's covered by the Data Protection Act. And we're very lucky that we have 91 pages of guidance on how you should monitor uh, employees. But fortunately enough, i managed to distill it into uh, four points, which is basically take a proportionate approach do an impact assessment and if possible record that in, in writing, weighing up the upside to the employee and the downside to the employer. Provide information to the employees that this may occur probably at the outset of the employment in some sort of policy and if you get any information from your monitoring then secure it. So it's generally quite, actually quite simple uh, to do in practice provided you have a good enough reason. Uh, the other law governing this area is the Human Rights Act. Uh, the right to a private and uh, family life, it doesn't really have uh, direct application to employees but it does impact the, on the admissibility of evidence into the court and this came up in the McGowan case, McGowan was uh, an engineer, he had to go to different sites, he was, um, he was suspected of um, filling in his own timesheets in a sort of fraudulent manner. The the employer waded up, they were trying to work out, how do we catch him, how do we investigate this, and they decided the best thing to do was to get a private investigator to follow him around. And Mr McGowan said, um, well, um, actually, you can't use that evidence in court. It's a breach of Article 8, uh, and consequently, it's inadmissible. The court said, no, actually, it was the only way you could be followed. They had a, a reasonable suspicion. What you were doing was very naughty. And because of that, that was proportionate, and the evidence could be omitted. So what are we seeing in monitoring? Well, actually, I don't think the Data Protection Act and the Human Rights Act are going to have too much difference in the future, or make too too much difference. Because what we're seeing is that employers are shifting. They're shifting from setting out people's duties and responsibilities. And what they're doing is they're having a sort of output based model. They're saying, look, these are the service levels you have to deliver. This is what you have to achieve, not what you have to do. If you achieve that, you are successful in your role. We don't really care how you do it. You can do it at night. You can do it in the bath. You can do it wherever you want. You have to achieve these service levels. And provided you do that, you will be successful. If you don't do that, you won't be. And that's the way we see uh, the employment relationship go.
1: So another uh, key future battleground is the work-life balance. And, and I say future battleground again. This is something that started pre-Lehman Brothers, as we've seen. Uh, the collapse of Lehman Brothers, and um, then employers have sort of been forced into work-life, well, not work-life balance, but flexible working, um, post-Lehman Brothers. I just wanted to draw your attention to this quote, which I think I think is a fantastic but extreme example of someone failing to get any work-life balance. This is the um, CEO of Google, who's basically, in this quote, what he's saying is, when i'm not sleeping i work um, which is slightly depressing (laughs) um and maybe that's what he needs to do as ceo of google um so moving on to flexible working as we've seen i think i think flexible working is becoming more widely accepted by employers partly because they see the benefits of it for Um, for their own productivity in terms of healthy motivated workers but also there are you know social changes at play here in terms of more women in the workplace more men taking on domestic chores um, and also people caring for an aging population as well but this comes with challenges Um, as we've seen home working has become more prevalent and acceptable it's no longer seen as shirking from home Um, and as as David has sort of focused on there's this output based um, Uh, Sort of focus on on work and monitoring employees to see what they're doing, so uh, home working in that context uh, sort of fits quite nicely. Um, The legislation has been slow to keep up though, so, health and safety legislation has all sorts of finickety little details about working from home, which I suspect many employers just never bother with. Um, The the guidance is quite useful, but, but the actual legislation itself is quite picky. The other challenge that comes from flexible working is that technology is starting to blur the boundaries between work and and home life, and employees finding it difficult to switch off, um, which can lead to health and safety concerns and stress claims. Um, and finally, the, th- the sort of third main conflict really um, or challenge is the potential for conflict in the workplace. So, whilst it's right to respect work-life balance and the right to reflect right to request flexible working, sometimes when flexible working is granted, the burden may shift to other employees who are left in the office beyond 5.30, for example, and that can lead to conflict unless it's dealt with properly. Um, I think this is becoming more of an issue as well because the government has just completed a consultation process um, in September and we're waiting for its response which, and the proposal is that. The government will extend flexible working or the right to request flexible working to all employees and will include a duty to consider an employee's request reasonably, which at the moment, as you you probably know, as long as you fit within the prescribed reasons for rejecting an application, you don't need to be shown to have considered the request reasonably. Thanks, Catherine. Well, let's just draw
0: some of these trends together. Some of these trends, which we should say, is from an employment law perspective. What are we seeing? And what do we expect to see? Um, The first point is the historical one, to bear in mind, is that we've got a huge amount of legislation, and it's all been developed to protect the individual, and not to help businesses, particularly businesses, going through fast change or in difficult uh, economic times. Um, Technology has fundamentally changed the way we work. I can remember 20 years ago that I had no computer. I had to beg my secretary to type all my letters for me um, before she went home. But but now we have laptops, we have um, mobile phones. There's been a fundamental transformation in the way it works. But that's also giving rise to a blurring, as Catherine mentioned, between work and other aspects of life. Um, The recession has, I think, fundamentally uh, changed the way we look at working practices. It's made working from home, part-time working, job sharing, and other flexible arrangements accepted. People see that employer, it's not just employees who have to do this, it's employers who do it as well. And in either case, it's been proven to be very successful. Um, there are, however, aspects of law uh, that are not fit for purpose. Um, as I identified on my, my previous search, in particular in relation to the unfair dismissal regime, um, I don't go to the, the extreme level of Beechcroft, I'll be interested to see if that report is ever revealed because I think it is so so controversial, I think the Liberal Democrats will bury it Um, But some of the points to raise are are very valid indeed. Um, On one level, the government is taking a very reactive approach. They're not doing anything. They're not changing anything. Um, Catherine mentioned a few changes, but they're really just tinkering around the edges. But the point to bear in mind is that most of the legislation is European-derived. They can't do very much about it, and that's why um, we're in so much difficulty. Um, It's also interesting to see there's this conflict between Beechcroft and Nick Clegg. There seems to be a bit of a fight going on within government as to what's going to happen going forward, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. So what should we do? What's the learning from this? Well, the law hasn't really kept up, so employers need to develop practices, contractual terms that allow them to make changes, that allow them to have efficient work practices, that allow them to um, bring new ideas in down the line. Those employers who adapt quickly, to make their businesses more efficient, more effectively, will ultimately win in this competitive world. Um, so that's enough from us. We're going to hand over to Matthew and Matilda from P- PwC, and um, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, I'm just just reflecting back on um, the recent recruits that I've
2: made, and I it, I've said, course, I don't Have I Google them, and I'm saying, poor chap, not understand social networks, so I wasn't able to check their social networking uh, lives, but. Uh, Good morning everyone, the sun's shining, the rain stopped, and uh, we're gonna, as David said, we're going to do a bit of, I think he used the word, futurology um, scenario planning, as we call it. I'm going to be joined um, with Matilda, <coughs> um, but I'm going to start off uh, talking about managing tomorrow's people, which is a piece of thought leadership that we put together um, probably three or four years ago four um, And it was all around looking at the future of 2020. 2020 doesn't seem so far away now, so maybe we need to revise that 2030 scenario planning. But it's 2020 and beyond. So I'm gonna um, just just throw some ideas out around 2020 and beyond. And then uh, Matilda's gonna take a look at our survey results. We surveyed uh, the millennials. I think we've probably have a few millennials in the audience, I would like to guess, we'll probably uh, committing some sort of crime <laughs> if I try and guess. we'll come back to uh, what demographic uh, section you each come from. Uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll have a discussion about that. Um, so, managing tomorrow's people, the, the world is changing. The world is a scary place, as we've just learned. Uh, it's very difficult to do business. Um, without tripping up on some, some employment thought. Um, and the world's changing at a very, very high rate. Um, I recognise a lot of the things on the from on the side of that slide. So passive recipients of information to active knowledge shares. Um, I recognise that in the workplace that I joined 26 years ago. Um, Wikipedia is probably the best example of active knowledge sharing. Voluntarily, people put information on Wikipedia, no reward, no recognition, they just do it. Very active knowledge sharers. Uh, the world is borderless, us. Virtual networks, the ability to connect with people around the globe is very easy today. We're not constrained by any barriers. Face to face contact, so we used to do business, now we have. Virtual contact, video conferencing—again, no boundaries. Um, it's a happy all society. I want it. I want it now. Um, and we in that world. We'll talk more about the millennials later. Um, and it's continuous learning. So people want continuous experience. So if they're not getting experience, good really experience today, they want to go somewhere else to move to get that experience. Um, I've been in this firm for twenty my second job, so I'm not quite a job for life but um, we don't see jobs for life anymore, it doesn't feel like the jobs <coughs> we're just life because you are continually having to learn and develop and I suspect we've all experienced that in our own lives working lives. So the world is, is undergoing all this change, so I want you to step forward to for 2020 and beyond and imagine what the workplace might be like. So in 20 years time, what do you think the world might be like in terms of business? And let me just throw some potential world scenarios and some scenarios out there. Um, let's think about um, what we've described as the blue world. The blue world is the world of big corporates. Big is good. Um, big company cat- capitalism reigns. Um, Size matters, conceivably we could have some corporates and I think we start to see that. Some corporates where their turnover is as big as the GDP of small states. Imagine a world where those big corporates provide employees with not just the traditional benefits that we see today, but other benefits like schooling for their children, education, housing. So break down the barriers Barriers um, where you just get 500 cars and traditional benefits. Um, imagine a world where um, employers provide everything for their employees, um, where performance management is closely monitored. The world is full of haves and have nots. So you've got people that sit in these big corporates that have And where performance management is strongly um, adhered to, where performance is measured on a daily basis, where information and data is gathered, so you can properly performance measure individuals' contribution, individual productivity. We talked about work-life balance. Imagine that world where the barrier between home and work is very low. That's what we call our blue world. And I think we start to see weeks say we did this four years ago, we start, I think I now start to see some of those types of organisations um, exist in the world. So that's one world. Let's go to the other extreme of big is bad. Big corporations don't exist. Small is good. Lean, efficient is productive. Specialism is what People need. Um, a world in which um, we see networks of organisations. So, a fragmented world which is completely reliant on networks and multiple um, skill sets. And I, I guess I can imagine a world where the traditional employer employee relationship ceases to exist. So, could we have a situation where Um, People don't contract with an employer. They put their skills out in a virtual network. So you have a CV, which is on this network, and and companies just draw on the skills of those individuals that are required for specific projects. And people become members of what we described as as guilds, craft guilds, they have particular skill sets, and they're members of guilds. So a very different world to the blue world. Um, very technology savvy in both worlds, um, but in the orange world, the links between buyers and sellers are very very complex. But networks are key, and then we have th- we came up with a third world, which is the green world. Um, again, I think we start to see some emergence of green type organisations. The green world is a world of Um, Organisations with powerful social functions. Consumers and employers force change in those organisations. Organisations where you work for a a green organisation when it matches your own values. So employee values match corporate values. Very much a world in which there are tight controls around supply chains. So that if you're working for a company, working with another organisation within the supply chain, they must match your own values before you work. Strong sense of corporate reporting on sustainability, social values, CSR, etc. Again, we start to see some of that corporate reporting happening today. Um, highly regulated world, big fines for non-compliance, and that is our orange world. So we've got three sort kind of extremes. So in 2020 and beyond, what I'm trying to give you is a picture of three possible worlds. We don't know where we're going. We see something. Kind of, I, I hope you recognize some of those organizations. We don't know, and if, if I could, if you go onto our webpage, you can you can click on the slides and say, well, if we move to a world of more individualism, we move more to the blue world. So the blue circle gets slightly bigger. If we move to a world of collectivism, we move to the other end of the scale, the green world so what are the typical employee uh, types within those organizations? So you have your blue employee. Uh, is somebody that's very career driven, very uh, focused on being successful. I am the best. I work for this organization because I get valued for the contribution that I give. And if I do well, I will succeed. I like being measured on my own performance. It's transparent. And if I don't perform well, then I will no longer survive in that organization. So strong performance management um, knows their value. And then in terms of how you manage those types of people, we've tried to, there to see this. It's, you, know, you can't even see it in the pack, actually. Um, it's on the website, so you can have a look on the web. But just picking up one or two of the behaviors in the blue world, um, big world, in terms of resourcing and succession that's quite easy. Um, Long careers, um, succession plans for key performers. And then if you move to a green world, um, the typical employee in the green world would be concerned about the wider world, concerned about sustainability. I'm not not, not going to refer to them as tree huggers, but um, you can start to see and I'm sure you recognise in your own own organisations, individuals that have strong social conscience um, and they will only work for an organisation if it does the right thing by their own values. The millennials typically fall into that category. And then there's the orange world uh, where individuals will work for, them, but work for an organisation because it fits their needs at that time. It's a particular um, time in their career which they think this is the right thing for them to do. Typically, highly specialized skills, and they're looking for development of So, short term engagement, etc. It's very easy to kind of picture those worlds. When you map all of the employment law considerations around this, it gets incredibly complex. Um, but that, those are the three worlds that we wanted to sort of just share with you in terms of getting you to think about what your organization might look like in 2020 and beyond. If we then add uh, another dimension, which is the demographic mix. Uh, I should ask, um, how many how many, how many, many millennials do we have in the audience? So millennial is generation Y, some be born between 1980 and 2000. I hope everybody born near 2000, but we have, a few, we have quite a few millennials in the audience, which is fantastic. Uh, so should we go down the from 65 to 79? <laughs> Nice. Your Generation X, sounds <laughs> Um How about the boomers? 46 to 64, huh? and then we've got, uh, this is can we say this, pre-1945, she doesn't look pre-1945. <laughs> um, so those are our millennials. So what are the, what are the we're gonna go on to talk about millennials, so what are the characteristics of our millennials? Millennials are very can-do, generalising future. But millennials are typically, so and if there's any millennials in the audience that disagree with me, shout out. But you're can-do kind of people, like um, you know, you've raised it, you just do it. Um, you're good multitaskers, you like multitasking. And I see the graduates that come into our office, and they like multitasking. They get bored very easily. You seek a challenge. You want development opportunities. Uh, you like working in teams. And we see that a lot. Um, there are some myths about um, millennials and Generation one. Um, some might say they're work shy. That's a, that's a myth. That's a myth. Um, they like to multitask. They like to work flexibly. Um, again, if anyone disagrees with this, shout out. Um, the other myth that is out there is that uh, they don't respect leadership. They don't respect their leaders. Um, that's a myth. They do respect leaders, but you have to earn their respect. Uh, and again, I see that we have. To, I have to spend a huge, well, I have to put a big effort in engaging with graduates of Daddy in order to get their respect. Probably not true ten years ago. partners I've got So I hope you recognise. So just some other words, optimism, confidence, self-esteem, entertainment overload. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Highly networked, um, impatient, multitaskers, high morals, um, naivety, uh, ambitious, job consumers, technical savvy of global systems. And there's some really interesting things in terms of the global citizen features, for example, yeah, they like experiences, they like, to, they like to work with different experiences in different organizations, different um, uh, places around the world. So, so we're now going to talk about, some, give you some specific numbers, some accountants, we love numbers. <laughs> um, we're going to give you some percentages. Good morning, everyone. Well, Matt, we might have said
3: that we're accountants and we love numbers. I'm not an accountant, but I'm gonna talk about the numbers. Um, So we surveyed um, about two years ago over 4,000 graduates um, about their expectations of work just as they were entering the workplace. Um, Those graduates uh, came from 44 countries And you may say that our findings could be slightly skewed because these were all people that were about to join BWC and start their career with us. Um, But all the same, there's some interesting, I think, trends or pointers that came out of um, that research, and it relates back to some of the things we already talked about. So I picked out five areas um, from the report that I want to just briefly talk through. <coughs> First is job mobility. Um, Matt mentioned the green world, corporate <coughs> social responsibilities, so say something about that. Um, technology, I don't think I can uh, trump the good examples that Catherine mentioned earlier, but I'll, um, I'll just tell you what we found. Um, training and development and then funding retirement. So moving on to job mobility then, here you go. Um, So millennials expect that job mobility would be part of their career. Um, 80% of them would like to work abroad, and 70% expect to use different languages in their career. Um, It's interesting, just in the, the detailed. Um, Graph: 93% of people from India wish to work overseas, but only 62% from the Netherlands. Um, and that you can perhaps put um, down to the fact that um, for people in India, those opportunities perhaps um, didn't exist for as long as it's been um, available and, and open to people in the, um, in the EU countries. A few additional points on that, um, I think the, the issue around language, they, in our research, only 38% of people were native English speakers. But 83% were expected to, or were expecting that they would conduct their work career in English. And the other two languages that sort of stood out um, were Spanish and French. So people expect that they will be multilingual. Another interesting thing is that um, people expect the mobility movement around the world to happen early on in their careers. And if you think about how we manage international assignments today, or how we've done it in the past, it was often reserved for people at a more experienced stage of their career, um, senior leaders, Sending them somewhere for final step, final experience before they come back into the organisation in, in the head office and move up into a very senior role. And it's interesting, I did a piece of work at the start of this year with the company um, who actually found that that approach is getting them into real difficulty because it's at the time that people are senior and experienced that you need them to be in one place where they lead a the team, they create a sense of stability in this ever-changing world that we're in and with everything that's happening in the economy at the moment. But then you get to a senior level, you really need to lead people at that time. You don't have the international experience, so off you've gone an assignment. And that has caused real, real implications. So one of the things that we were talking to them about is have you thought about creating those opportunities to move around, get different experiences much earlier on in people's careers. I think it's also definitely the talent squeeze um, that people have been talking about for many years, but I think we're only expecting now to start to feel the impact of that will absolutely necessitate people to move around, and employees will um, become um, much more in demand, and um, you know we kind of speculate and will it become an employee market as opposed to an employer market, and will employees be able to to dictate more? And I think you there are some examples, not just now but over the last years, where in specific areas there has been high demand. Um, pharmaceuticals companies, for example. Um, had a high demand for um, of, uh, researchers who specialize in oncology, um, those people could pretty much dictate whatever they wanted to earn and where they wanted to work. Likewise, um, oil and gas organizations, and energy companies, um, who due to <coughs> this high demand and, and they could really dictate where they wanted to go those are very specialist areas, but what we're predicting is that that train will start to um, be more uh, prevalent across all jobs, all areas of
2: expertise. Just, just what's staying on the, but the, the, yeah. the good news on the mobility one is that you know in the old days, if you wanted to send somebody overseas, you'd have to send them on a package which would include housing, school fees, a multiple of probably two or three times their current package what this is saying you don't need to do that for many of them want to go so the, 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 in terms of the reward package they're expecting that is the reward it's about the opportunity,
4: opportunity. <laughs> and once they get to the point where they've all got families to support they probably will expect that no i,
2: I think it's a change in it is a change in in terms of their attitude. In terms of they want to get go abroad for the experience of and development. That that was not the case ten years ago. People did not want to go abroad because of it, it was a, it was it was because actually I can do quite well financially out of this and it might enhance my career in that organisation, not because I'm enhancing my broader experience. It's a very fun, there's a fundamental shift. I mean, it might be the fact that they don't also have a family, but you know that 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 that's not the
4: reason. <coughs> Sorry, not. I think you know, we actually what I would say is a sense of the, uh, the way that uh, the virtual online.
2: Where you t- t- you went on that program it was an international assignment type program. So you were expected to move around the world. Those are kind of becoming uh, obsolete now because it's just it's more a way of life. You don't have to have those those fancy programs. to people expect to be able to do it
4: flexibly. I think round to that I think reality is that distributed work is much more real today. You can go and get a guru, bang the wall, literally. From the States, from the Greek countries, Brazil, Venezuela, whatever, they're much more accessible. And I think the idea of either distributing your workforce or just buying the workforce as you need it on demand is much more real. The legislation is in a country to country, European versus American legislation. I think this is what's
3: There was another question at the back.
2: Okay.
3: Yeah, right. okay, moving on then to um, corporate social responsibility. Um, Matt mentioned earlier that people want to work for companies who reflect their own values. And in fact, our findings suggest 88% of millennials would want to work for a company who reflect their personal values. 86, <coughs> As many as 86% would actually leave a company who they don't feel reflect their values And again, just in the detailed data, it's interesting that North America, Caribbean, and South and Central America, it's as high as 91%. So people feel very, very strongly about that. Um, It also, climate change specifically, is becoming a real big issue for people. um, And 58% of the respondents particularly comment on that. Again, that depends on um, geography and where people are located because in a place like Brazil, it was much higher at 86% because there's a much greater awareness of how climate change um, would be impacting the rainforest and the potential impact that could have on their economy. Picking up um, something on the technology side, and um, Catherine um, covered that in the... In, um, Great detail with some interesting examples around social networking. Now, given that this was two years ago, at that time, 85% of those respondents were on social networking sites. Um, since then, I think the tools to access those sites have become um, even um, more mobile and, and it's become easier to access. So the implications of that for work, I think is becoming increasingly important as you highlighted. And one of the, um, the, the, the data points that came out of our research is that 40% of millennials are quite happy to, to share their data openly. Um, so there's definitely a, a mindset change in their perspective because social networking sites require you to share a lot but the implications of that perhaps is not always that clear to them. Um, the challenge is, and I think um, Catherine highlighted that and, and, and David in the summary, you need policies increasingly to govern this. And the, one of the things in the experience I have in working with HR functions is, you know, it is sometimes challenging not to create the policies, but to make sure that they are implemented in a consistent way, especially if you have operations in more than one country. And I think the the nature of how how fast technology is moving and how quickly things are changing will require policy changes on a much more frequent basis than, for example, your holiday policy or your, your security. Policy and, and the challenges that will bring is how do you implement that in an international or global company? Um, David talked about um, home working earlier on. What was interesting, and it's actually um, contradictory to what we expected, is that people would, millennials, would see themselves working from home a lot more, and because um, of the the ability to um, be online and, and through sophisticated technology, even see people in different locations. But in fact, only 3% of the respondents suggested that um, they would expect to work mainly from home. Um, and one of the reasons given for that was that personal contact, <coughs> that teammate, or being with teammates, um, Matt mentioned earlier. Millennials work well in teams, so they see that they miss out on that. Moving on to training and development. This is the most highly valued employee benefit for Millennials. Um, And another one that has been highlighted, 98% of Millennials in our research indicated that working with a coach and a mentor is really important to them. And again, if you think about it, that's in many cases uh, reserved for more senior leaders in an organization. So perhaps something something to think about. The second um, important point was, was flexible working, and I just wanted to mention that because that was, um, it came out of what David and Catherine said as well. Linking that to the point I just made about the home working, that flexible working doesn't necessarily mean home working. People just want the flexibility around the office hours, but still happy to work in the office. And then what they're looking for in that office environment as well is the ability to develop, learn, and learn from others with more experience. So that sort of creates a challenge for incentive schemes around cash bonuses, and even conditions and shape schemes, how important will that be for millennials? And then, finally, funding retirement, um, sort of a topic that we often see discussed in the media these days. Um, And most of our respondents um, thought that they would have to fund their own retirement, with only 5% believing that the government or the state would provide funding, and 17% um, expecting that um, their retirement would be funded by an employer. What's interesting, if you look at the detailed data across the different countries, is that a country like Germany, 90% of people expect to fund their own retirement. But in the Netherlands, only 27% expect to fund their own retirement. Um, The others expect companies to fund their their retirement. So very, very different perspectives. Um, And I think that again will create Interesting challenges as you start moving people around, growth more and bring people and um, those um, international assignment experiences. So that's just a counter through some of the key points from our survey, and I'll hand it back to Matt now.
2: Okay. Some, some more data for you. So we also surveyed some, uh, you know, an annual CEO survey. So here's some numbers from the CEO survey. Um, 70% of CEOs are worried about competitors approaching their top people. guess the global average, it's the UK number. global average is 52. Um, 54%, these, these, these are consistent trends over the years. So picking out the ones where we've, we've, we've seen this is not a big change year on year. But 54% see challenges in recruiting and integrating younger employees. In the levels. 65% of CEOs intend to make more use of non-financial rewards. Sounds good, sounds encouraging. And 59% of CEOs would require more staff in international science, again, sounds encouraging. And, and I suppose the question we want to leave you with is, so um, given what we've heard about millennials and what they think, um, and that was a survey that was two years old, um, so things would have moved on slightly, and we talked about some areas which may have moved on. Um, but given the demographics in your organizations, um, what action do you need to take in terms of responding to some of those changes and s- responding to the different demands of the different demographic types? Um, so, and there are some, um, and this is this was a couple of years ago, but I pick out some examples. I think it's a good example. So, 60% of CEOs uh, two years ago said that um, providing employees with ability to get involved in social they said that. Uh, they wanted to get provide employees with the ability to get involved in socially responsible activities. And they thought that that was key. Our survey, which came to two years, at the same year, 7% of our members said that that was important, it's just 7%. Where CEOs were saying, no, it's absolutely key. We need to make sure that we have this load. And so the point I'm making is, there's one example where you know, there's a bit of a disconnect there with what CEOs are saying and what members are saying. So, Do they really understand what the different demographics in their workforce need? And are they responding appropriately? And are you helping them, giving those messages to them to to enable them to respond appropriately? And here's here's some things that we've just jotted down as potential recommendations, which you might like to think about. Um, We do a lot of, um, I'm sure you, you and your own organizations in different departments, do segmentation of your customer base. And you, you will do all sorts of analysis around your customers about what their different needs are, they'll cut in slice and dice in geographies, age groups, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Do you do that for your employees in terms of their needs? And if not, is that something that you could look at? And, and start using metrics and benchmarking to, to do that. To understand, we've just talked about millennials, but millennials is percentage was, a percentage of the workforce, but what about the other geographies, oh, sorry, segments and demographics? And there was a ge- geographic dimension to this which Matilda mentioned, some geographies have different needs than others, so how are you going to segment it and, and deal with that? I don't have an answer to all these questions, but these are some things that I think you need to speak about if you're not really thinking about them. Uh, So think about reward strategies. What is it that's going to motivate people in the younger generation? And how do you motivate, and this is a question for for David and others to consider, um, how do you have different reward strategies for different segments of of your population without infringing some employment law? Um, Because millennials, as as we've had in some countries, are not particularly worried about pensions. So having a generous pension scheme it's probably not best, best spend of your reward. They're not particularly interested in cash bonuses. What they really want is training <coughs> and development. And most CEOs, when it comes down to times like today, what's the first thing that they will cut? Training and development. So you know, is that necessarily a good spend of, of your cross-cutting measures? Maybe you can cut cash bonuses. Yeah. These are questions for you to consider. Consider the global opportunities, we talked about that in some detail. That enthusiastic generation <coughs> that we have, capitalise on. Invest in personal development training, we talked about that, Um, and and, and communicate the employer brand. What is it that you stand for? Because people are interested in what your values are as an organisation, and if you can get that out there, um, then people are more (coughs) attracted to your organisation. And so we are starting to see companies do that, organisations do that in their corporate reporting
4: articulating what their values are okay um, hi everybody um, my name is Mark Skilton, I'm a global director with um, capgemini and uh, my role at the moment is developing the strategy within um, a number of uh, technology areas within capgemini capgemini is a consulting firm it's also an outsourcing firm um, my personal background is you can you can go and check me out on LinkedIn and other things that you've seen today. Uh, It's very much sort of 30 years almost now. Hopefully not showing it um, in terms of in various roles within IT. So what I've been asked to do is to really kind of talk about technology in the workplace. Um, It was quite hard for me because I kind of just live and breathe this stuff and then being asked to sort of reflect on this is quite a challenge. But what I'd like to do is take you through some examples. I'm gonna show you a video in a minute uh, which I think is a very exciting and interesting video. Uh, from Microsoft, uh, who is a strategic partner of Capgemini. And what I want to do is really plant in your mind the sort of things that are currently going on in, in your workplace, and what sort of things I'm experiencing in terms of HR, career development, knowledge management, working within, with employers and employees inside and outside of my company, and really take you through some of the, sort of the, the fringes of where technology is going today. So everything you'll see is real, even the Microsoft video, which is saying it's 2019, it's actually real today, you can do it today. But what I want to do is sort of push you out and into positionings where, what sort of technology should I be developing in my company to augment my workforce? To develop my business operation? So that's the sort of thing I'm hoping you'll get out of this. But I want to try and get through this quickly because I'm quite keen to get to panel session because I want to really hear what you think, which is really the bit I want to get out of this. So three things I want to talk about is really the technology impact of work, but something that's quite near, but possibly slightly into the future. I want to talk about this concept called realism. Realism is actually a subject you can study in philosophy at university. I've got two doors at university, and one studying psychology. And she's studying this stuff, and I think she uses me as a guinea pig. Um, but you'll see technology realism as well as personal realism. But hopefully, this experience here is a real experience, and you can talk about the virtual reality as another type of realism. And finally, practical technology. I do want to be practical, believe it or not. Some people say I'm all in the clouds. I am in the cloud a lot if you look at me on Google. Um, But it's all about practical use of this technology. Um, I spend a lot of time in industry abroad and going to Santa Clara. I've got a conference next week over there. What I find is that the competitive advantage that technology can bring to the workspace is undeniable. I heard on Radio 4 a couple of days ago they were saying that 40% of all venture capital funding globally is, is invested in Silicon Valley at the moment. I find that a, an extraordinary statistic and also a very worrying statistic because particularly with the European Union situation at the moment, looking at the Asia Tiger building in uh, Korea, um, Taiwan, China, India, these are real competitive threats to our industries. And so when we say, no. You know, when Eric Schmidt is sleeping, he must be sleeping. He's got downtime. When he's awake, he's working. What he actually physically means by that is the whole thing is working 24 7. And I find this personally. I've got friends in San Francisco and Los Angeles that I work closely with virtually. And they're working when I'm asleep. When I'm awake, they've just sent me some emails. So I sort of get emails at 7 o'clock in the morning, which is uh, on the West Coast side. And then I've got some friends in India, and I'm getting emails sort of again about 9 o'clock in the morning and I continue debating stuff about 8 or 9 o'clock at night. So I have a very long day, usually, if I can stay offline, it's good I can get some sleep, like Eric. So really what I want to do is show you a video. Now I was thinking, you've already had the handout, so you know how many things. This is five minutes and 12 seconds long. And what you'll find is that there is an innovation in this video every two seconds. So if you do the maths on that, there's 160 technical innovations in five minutes you're about to see. What's annoying is I actually looked at it this morning, and I found another two. (laughs) (laughs) I think think there's actually probably about 250 technical innovations, legislative technical innovations as well as technology innovations. As I said, when you look at it, there are at least 160 technology innovations in those five minutes. Most of those can be done today. I'd say all of it can be done today. Possibly the electric paper, the e-paper is still in the prototype stage. But certainly the idea of augmenting your work with information from the cloud, the internet, personalising it, moving it. I flew from, uh, what was it, Dallas to LA a few months ago through Virgin Atlantic. Have you tried that flight? But if you go Virgin, they've got online Wi Fi on, on the aircraft. And so I can carry on working it's as if I haven't left the ground. Weird. Really good. I liked it. If you experience their entertainment, it's very good. It's very like that, actually, in some ways. So what I wanted to do, really, was to show you the vision of the future. But I think what's happening is that a lot of these things, when you go through this, are actually real issues today. If you look at the uh, economists, they do these online briefings. And there was a debate recently. You can go and Google this. but They're actually talking about, are we in the post-PC world? You know, Steve, your lesson. I think has moved the boundary. That information, for and against, and basically the debate is, we're in in a remote working world now. We've got devices where I can work wherever I want to. And and the against emotion was this idea that actually, PCs still do matter. It's just the way you use them. It's PCs plus services. And actually, I would argue they're both correct. It's not a post-PC world. We're in a mixed technology world going into the future. And we'll talk about that when we get to realism. So really the fields of perception, this is something that I think is quite, hopefully quite a simple slide, me being an IT guy, I like concepts. But I think something that's taken quite a long time to come to this conclusion is actually we actually live in probably three or four different worlds simultaneously. What I mean by that is in our minds are actually working and concentrating on the presentation. We could collaboratively debate things as a group, or virtually. literally, we can actually extract information from different markets around the world. We can actually get information online, we can augment our reality. And what's happening is that actually there's a convergence of physical and virtual work. I'm a, a, a lead ambassador for Warwick Business School. It's, they've got the, Europe's biggest LinkedIn um, network, for example. And one of the things I do with the students is tell them that actually a lot of their work is now virtual. A lot of the things you can do physically, you can actually move out and do virtually. So what does that mean if you're an HR department, or if you're trying to manage your knowledge, or you're trying to develop your competitive advantage? Can it drift off into the cloud? Yes. How do we work virtually? If you saw from that video, The idea of interaction can actually be done physically and virtually but in the same space. A joke I do with the students I say is who in this room is actually physically here but actually mentally elsewhere? About five of them put their hands up and say I'm not paying attention to what you're saying. What they physically mean by that, what I mean by that is 10% of my time during the week I spend virtually online talking to people in San Francisco and LA or India. What I mean by that is my mindset. It's actually in this space over here. I'm working over there. And I would argue that probably a lot of you in this room potentially also spend a lot of time in virtual workspaces. Now, this is quite different, but you do do it. When you're looking at Facebook or you're looking at LinkedIn, you're kind of getting information virtually. But if you start interacting and working on, uh, I don't know, WebEx or something like that, that is a virtual workspace. If you then translate that into business transactions, you move it up another level. What's happening is that this is a multiplicity world. And this is something I found, particularly when I work in IT, I talk to SOA experts. It's a phrase, service oriented architecture. It's been flogged to death. People have made a good living out of it in consulting, including me. One of the things that SOA talks you, talk, tells you to do is you declare what you're doing. But in the cloud, or in the internet today, it's a many-to-many relationship that you can have many channels going to communicate with someone, you can interact with people in different ways, and in fact what's happening out there is a many-to-many community relationship evolving before us. So really what we have here is this idea of virtual workspaces. At Capgemini, we've got our computer-based training, we've got our corporate social responsibility exams that we have to do online, and we've got to get at least 80% or 90% right on the online test. This year, this morning, I had an email from the CTO saying I'm to, I've got to exchange some of my white papers. He wants me to upload that to the corporate database. Yeah? These are similar experiences, I would argue, that every organization is having today. They're trying to take information out of here and putting it out to a group of people. Likewise, I actually used my phone being a geek. I used my phone to get here. You know, he was saying, you actually emailed me the PDF so I've got to download the PDF and then I've got to watch the physical, you know, walk around. It doesn't work like that. Um, just basically put it into Google, postcode, and off you go. It took me, I didn't go around the room looking for an hour on the floor. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but it can be done that way. And likewise, in virtual organizations, I think what we're seeing, is, you may have heard of this term, Internet of Things or Internet of Everything. Watch out for that one, because W3C, Big Global, stands Code organization working on Internet of Devices and Internet of Services, Internet of Things is going to be big in the next 10 years. We'll talk about that as well in the slides. So this is sort of the one-on-one, knotty knotty diagram, it's basically, it's not a supply chain anymore, it's a supply network. It's not a value chain, it's a value network. It's not a business process workflow, it's an event-driven workflow. So you saw the video, you saw people following events. And in the events in real time, I need to get some information, I need to do something. It's much more event driven. And that can be done because we have real time connectivity, real time connections to systems. There are lots of different uh, social networks. And this imagery here is what I want to try and put into your mind is to think about information in your company, and also your skills, your knowledge database, your CV, curriculum vitae, Vitae in, in your organisations, as basically digital boundaries of what that knowledge sum is in your organisation. Then you need to understand how is that connecting with different workspaces. It's real. Another thing that we've been doing recently with the standards work I've been working through is this idea of edge networks. and linkage of information between different systems. So it's surprising. And it's only when I talk to my wife and I say, well, did you realize this is all online about you? You just type your name in. Well, I didn't agree to put any of that out. Well, you didn't, because it's actually out there. And that happens all the time. And the reality is, is we're getting this kind of evolution of super information online, which could be legal, could be illegal, or well, some of the time it is illegal, but it's a fact of life. And this is the question we've got to embrace, embrace moving forward. This is something that is sort of um, currently under development, but I I think it's okay to show. The idea that we talk about information in IT is obviously looking at databases, files, gadgets, and things like that. But what's very interesting and something that I would argue you need to sort of think about is really the social organisation. I'm doing some work with Warwick Business School again about how do they connect the school to other business schools. And so what they're doing is they're trying to work out how they connect their social space to other social spaces, their workspaces. Second thing they need to look at is what sort of cloud services do they need to use? How do they interact? And finally, if you abstract that out, IT people love to abstract, whatever that means. If you abstract that out, what that does is you create a catalogue of services, things that you can do inside your company, or you can outsource it or buy it External. So what's happening out there in reality is that um, it's going on right now. Attitude was just recently bought in by uh, uh, LogMeIn.com. You may know LogMeIn.com. You can basically buy the subscription. You can go anywhere and log into your PC at home. patch pat- is basically a Internet of Things platform. And for example, what it has it has lots of sensors around the world downloading data from the internet collecting lots of, lots of data, downloading it into the internet, and then producing maps of things going on. So for example, the radiation leaks in Japan, or the earthquakes in San Francisco, I think they had two 4.6 earthquakes recently, a couple of weeks ago. So oh, that's just normal, just down the road in you know, Oakland. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, but this sort of thing is actually real. You can get this sort of augmented information today. Internet of Things tomorrow will be much more about what information can I get. I'm not talking about big data, I'm talking about data from all these different sources to bring it into your organization for work. Tesla, it's a American car. If you go look at the video, really nice if you like cars, I do. Uh, electric car, prototype. But The point I'm making is this is effectively an iPad in your car. What's that mean? It means that everything is mobile. That everything can be configured, everything can go with you, and you can actually sense what you're doing, you can automate what you're doing. Google have actually developed a driverless car. And what does this actually mean? The point I'm making is that your skills are changing. You can actually take your skills with you. It could be mobile. Services can be mobile. You saw in the video the idea of being able to do work mobily. This is an interesting one. It's a couple of years old. Imperial College, I think we've got someone from Imperial College here, but it was regarding um, some of the work I was doing with the IT department there, but the important thing I want to make out of this is this idea of online agents. The work they've been doing was this idea of creating digital avatars to negotiate purchasing of goods. Now they could do actually more, they could digitise me, they could digitise the lawyers here they can take your knowledge and digitise it, so we don't have to pay your salary or my salary, you can just go online and they will negotiate. Robot to robot, avatar to avatar, they can negotiate online. What's wrong with this model? (laughs) (laughs) Now the question is, what happens is it has moved forward to some degree, but the idea of declarative negotiation needs human intervention. The innovation that Not everything can be standardised as a contract of exchange. Now, if you're buying consumer goods, for sure, you can do this. But a lot of more complex negotiations still can't be digitised. It was interesting there was no artificial intelligence apart from the voice translation on the video. What will happen in the next probably future, near future, is that when you go and purchase something, it will probably be an avatar that you'll be talking to, not a human. This is real. There's research going on. Robot communities. We're all talking about people today, my favourite kind of thing. And they're actually, there are robots. And I This is a really interesting thing that's been developed in Germany, where you've got actually a community of robots that share learning online. And what I mean by that is that one robot learns to pick up a cup, and that information it learns, it then uploads into a database in the cloud, and then shares that knowledge with another robot halfway around the world. And so what is a bit like Skynet on the, uh, you know, in that, in that film, in Terminator. It's real. And what's happening is that they're starting to share robot to robot, no human intervention, sharing knowledge. Now, if I bring this back to near reality with humans, humans can digitise their information, their knowledge, and share it much more freely, but it's now happening in robots. What they're hoping to do is to create a collective knowledge database of robot-shared learning. This is real, not fantasy. Another one, which I think a lot of people have seen recently with the riots. I was lucky on holiday in the two weeks that those riots actually happened, which was a good timing for me, but it wasn't good for the nation. In regard to the way personal identity can be violated just by digitising face recognition, it can be done today. The point here is really about identity, personal identity, personal privacy is changing rapidly because technology can actually identify you, it can augment you, it can figure you out. I could probably turn the camera to this audience now and I could probably with some software work out every one of your names and some details about your personal backgrounds. I wouldn't do that of course. But it's possible. And what does that mean in terms of privacy? It means a hell of a lot. It means you need to know what's private and what's public. Guru.com. I don't know if anybody use used guru.com. But guru.com is basically a freelance database where you can basically say, I've got a piece of work to program, usually tea obviously, we've developed our own website using these guys. You put it out and you bid and you do a reverse auction. You basically say, I've got a job, can you do it for say $500? And then you'll get a quote from five or six people from around the world. So this is real, this is the work of the future 2.0, I would say. So if I need to get some skills, I don't need to go into my own company, I can go and recruit it from outside. What is wrong with this model? Well, the good things about this model is you can get a very good competitive price. You get lots of choice. You can get a lot of access to some very clever, skilled people. But the bad side of it is it actually takes longer, potentially, to learn and exchange the knowledge between remote partners. So the way you work remotely, the way this works, as an interstitial facilitating work between people online and offline, can take more time, it needs more management processes to manage the quality of the service. I find this picture amazing. Um, I don't know if anybody's heard of 3D printing, but this uh, lobster, which crab, was actually printed. So it was built up with layers, a bit like printing. You print a little layer and you add a little bit more and you keep building it up like a cake. And eventually you come up with an object. I didn't realise that this whole object was actually printed. I, I just look at it and I still don't believe it when I see it, because when you see it, you can see like a printer cup or you can print anything. The point I'm making is that the idea of work, doing work, can actually be changing today as well. So in, in the sense of actually being able to manufacture things or build things or design things, there are people out there, a bit like the uh, in Star Trek when you, when you have the replicator, you press the button, I want a cup of tea, out comes uh, Earl Grey. Something like that is what these guys are trying to do. This is going on now. You can go and buy this sort of technology today. It's still prototype. The, the turn cycles, the cost of the operation is still prohibitive, but they're starting to use this technology for doing small small printed objects. So the type of work that you can do, the commoditization of work, is actually changing through this type of technology. So realism, uh, just constant of the time you've got. So I just want to wrap up in five minutes. Realism is really this concept that I'm not going to say, this is all complicated, we shouldn't be doing this, it's not something that we should embrace. What I'm actually saying is the opposite. I'm actually saying you need to get more of this because you need to build UK competitiveness, or European competitiveness, if I'm wearing my European hat for now. What I mean by that is we need to be looking at things that say, how can I augment my business space with information from around the world? What I call macro distributed augmentation. It's a bit of a mouthful. We like lots of long words in the United States. But it is real. You should be looking at that. Likewise, we see lots of things in certain research labs where they're designing new molecules, new types of science, designing sort of new types of cars and, and simulating those with finite element analysis. Doing that type of technology, we need to be embracing that technology, the high high-end compute capability, simulation, things like that, needs to be part of the workspace. It's not something you push away. On the other end of, sort of the macro mm-hmm. is then the micro. You know, the internet of things, the RFID tags, I don't know if you heard you can actually eat RFID tags now. They were thinking of actually embedding them into food. So when you have a spaghetti bolognese, it goes into your gut and they can actually monitor it. They say it may have a problem with consumers but it's, <laughs> the, yeah, the supply chain might have a bit of a problem there too, but in terms of idea, is that everything could be actually digital, digitised, your fridge says you're running out of milk, you can go and reorder it for you, that can be done. These technologies over here, the internet are actually real, and people are trying to do this now. game with augmented intelligence, what I call realism is actually trying to replicate humans in digital form, the avatars, you'll see more of that in the next five to 10 years as people try to add value to the information that's actually on the internet already. And then finally, as I said, coming here, we need to go into virtual worlds. We didn't physically have to meet today. We could have done this all online. Not quite as exciting, I don't think. But it could have been done. Could have done it in second second life. That would have been even more interesting. (laughs) But here, likewise, we can actually use devices to actually augment and move things around and get information on the fly. So really, there are three things that I'm suggesting you need to be um, focusing on. You need to be thinking about human-system interaction, virtual task support. So you need to be thinking either with your IT departments or looking through your business strategies. How am I actually using virtual information to push that capability in my organisation? If I don't necessarily have to buy it in, you don't have to buy the cow to get the milk. This is a phrase that's used in SaaS offers a service. Google it. Virtual work, more work will be done virtually or via variable uh, resources. We already have that with, the, with PwC this, this morning. Likewise, there's a thing called VOs, virtual organizations. They are starting to appear. There are some uh, businesses that have only existed in cyberspace. There are many of those examples coming out. So practical technology then, I think there's Kind of a little the same so you need to say where is your associated network not just your physical network of your friends and your relations and your knowledge network but you need to see where your brand branding is going how you're interacting with the associated network that's the connections with your company and other companies with your employees with other employees very important aspect of strategy you also need to look at your channels. All, this, all these sort of channels down here are different ways in which we can interact. We can either be physical, how old fashioned, actually shake someone by the hand and say hello, so yesterday. <laughs> um, or we can start to use mobile websites or virtual spaces. But also, in terms of the presence channels, we can do things, certainly in the public sector, we have contracted purchasing quotas. <coughs> You have different types of reselling arrangements. What's the legal implications around that? Can you resell your knowledge? Yes. Indirect to market, you have intermediaries, much more the way things are being brokered, orchestrated. So you never actually see the end customer. You're always dealing with a third party. What you can actually do the direct to market, you think about how those things work in work, how they interact. It's not just a binary, I have employees, I've got a device, we have a service. We need to think about, Who are we doing this through and how are we actually contractually doing it? Finally, my last slide is really four areas I would recommend you look at. As I said, look at your service design development, look at the virtual space, look at your knowledge, how you can augment that. Look at your purchasing, provisioning of IT services or your provisioning of business services. How are you actually purchasing people? Do you need to buy people anymore? Can you buy skills online? Extend the virtual workspace. As I said, lots of this thing's going on in Capgemini at the moment, extending our capability across the world. And finally, how does the market actually change? How can you influence your actual market you're working in? How does work influence the shape of the market? So that's all I wanted to sort of cover off. And really, those are the things I wanted to say to you about how work has changed. It's much more virtual, much more online so uh, hopefully you found that interesting thank you very much
0: thank you for that that was um incredibly interesting very insightful um has anyone got any questions perhaps starting uh, any questions from mark following following that talk
2: um uh, many of the trends you've just talked about uh, don't allow the traditional it departments to
0: control what's going on and it would seem. That you'd lose the benefits of them if you did try to control it, but they also challenge what our definition of a company is. Oh, well that's, that's probably better. <laughs> so, so the, the trends you have just talked about um, challenge the notion of controlling IT, and then challenge whether it's desirable to control what people are doing. But it means that what is a company is is much less clear from what you were saying there. How, how do you how do you how do you sort of define a company in
2: that?
4: Well, I think in the company, I think you've got two boundaries to answer it as simply as I can. It's you've got your inside your company boundary. So what information are we actually going to hold inside, physically hold inside? So what is the physical information that you're going to manage inside your organisation? I remember a a well-known oil company, uh, they were trying to do an inside-out approach where they don't have anything internally. Then you keep the very core, minimum, critical information inside the organisation and they turn themselves out, inside-out and all of the information effectively affects me, 95% of the company information and IT services are done externally. So it's an inside out arrangement. So I would say there's two, physical information, what you're doing and what sort of devices, what sort of knowledge do we need to manage. And then there's this new emergent virtual world, which is what I call the associated networks. You need to be clear, as Kemp Little was saying and PwC, is what sorts of things are going on in different online social network spaces. I'm saying, moving it further forward, is understanding what channels are you actually talking to? Because some of that you actually want to encourage, because your competitive advantage is actually delivered through those channels. But some of those are actually things that cause leakage, that may leak some of the information that you don't want to get out of there. The way a lot of companies deal with this is they actually just build private clouds, or they basically switch off the process. And I'm saying, yes, but no if you look at what competitors are doing, they're tending to embrace, and they sort of set up a new business unit, or they may put up a strategic partnership, and they deal with this in a sort of managed uh, clone environment, if you will. But it it has to be done in terms of investment by investment case. Has anyone else got any? Yes, Can I just raise
0: three points, really?
2: Can I mention security,
4: confidentiality, and
2: ownership? Absolutely. Lots of innovation. And for, for an, an innovator, keeping control and ownership of that innovation is vital to give a return on investment. Um, how can you be secure and confident that that gets
4: protected yeah. in all of this? Yeah, intellectual property and copyright law is something that is exercising my mind as well in terms of some things I write uh, for my employer or for my own personal use. It's it's one where you need to have clear. Um, you know, I signed agreements with our own internal legal doc- I'll just talk about myself, it's the easiest thing to do. I, I have a legal, uh, a legal arrangement document with, with my own company that I can write a book next year, that any sharing of information is it's all written down, so you have a memorandum of understanding and a legal document that actually shapes that correctly. Um, please interrupt if I'm not doing this correctly. Um, and, um, so I think the, the other thing you need to be much smarter in terms of, uh, the thing with the internet is you can copy things a lot quicker. And I've got another slide that sort of shows that. It's an advantage, but also a disadvantage. And so you have to have sort of much more slicker IP laws. And I, one of the things that I really find amazing when I talk to my friends in the West Coast is how switched on, when I first got to know them, the first thing we're talking about is, can we IP that? And I think, well, wow, we haven't even spoken about what we're gonna do yet. And they, they kind of, their mindset is much more litigus, and you can hear about patent trolls and all that stuff going on in the mobile sector at the moment. It's, it's actually, it's time to wake up, it's the way the work is, is being involved. So it needs to be much more legally managed, is what I'm seeing. I'm not, I'm not stating anything new you probably haven't heard of, but um, then as we saw, you need to have policies of use. Now, the question is, does your company have enough money to put proper security encryption on that so you're, I'm allowed to walk out the building? if I'm working in the MOD, which I have done, this would be a complete lack of, this wouldn't be a reality, this would not be here. So I think you have to have very strong um, security policies, which are modern, they are West Coast sensitive, that they liberate you, but they control what you're letting out.
0: Matthew, I don't know if you've got a perspective on data security from your uh,
2: your survey and uh, your various scenarios. I don't think data security is quite as relevant you know, in that context, but um, the in thing is to share the views in terms of, share the, views in terms of uh, the importance of it's, it's a new way of doing business. It's, yeah, you it's leverage
4: a, it's it, it's a, it's a monetization strategy, I, I use the word monetization a lot. You can actually make money being litigus, seriously. I'm not advocating that as a business strategy by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it could be done. <laughs> uh, I think the baby I think the baby boomers are actually their oh, parts working. The, the baby boomers are actually probably down here. They're looking at the buildings and looking at the staff. Well I it's not I agree, this is mostly IT that's what I'm here to talk about, but a lot of what I think the baby boomers need to be aware of, that the generation X are already over here, is that you need to think about what channel you're actually marketing your your freelancing work too. Yeah, but but sorry, I'm not getting through. I'm not talking about
2: my own situation, not baby boomers in general. I'm talking about the social and political implications of what you're talking about. I mean, how can all of this be realized in a world where most of what you're talking about seems to be inaccessible because of people's lack of education Well,
4: actually, I mean, I'll just finish up. Just sort of the others talk, but that's the rub. That's the whole problem. The whole problem is, is it's basically, I think I said it to my colleague uh, in the lunch break, I said, it's basically a horse a horse has already left the barn, it's rushing ahead. And I, I was working with a, a well known pharmaceutical company in New York uh, last Christmas, and, they, and their strategy, the head of strategy, said, Our business units are already buying online services, we've already got knowledge going on in the business, they're ahead of us, they're not even talking to the IT department. They're not even talking to, it. the business that is just going out. This is empowering the business, it's a good thing. And the reality is that it's actually happening already whether you like it or not. And the question is you can either embrace it or you set up your own camp or you understand it. The, the challenge of the session today that came little the driving, and PwC and Capgemini is to say let's work out the points that we need to look at. And I think that's really the social and political implications is, you know, are many but you know, the social implications are is your personal information, the way you interact with your colleagues, your own personal life and your work life are emerging. Politically, we've got problems of, say, the subpoenas with the Patriots Act in America about private information and corporate information. It's over- overriding the Safe Harbour Act in, in Europe and the digital agreements in Europe. So at a very big global level, we've got sort of tectonic forces going on over there. And what I'm saying is that the company needs to position itself in cyberspace as well as in physical space, and you in cyberspace as well as you in, in your own physical organization. And the way I like to look at it personally is to look at the channels, just to be clear. You know, I'm doing this with LinkedIn, I'm doing this with Twitter, I'm working in this area online, I've you know, sent back to the CTO. Where is that knowledge going to be put into the corporate database? It's understanding that so that the work can be augmenting to the maximum effect Around the workplace to create competitive advantage.
0: And it seems, I mean, uh, I think the interesting point is that it is going to have social economic. You know, we've, we've taken a lot of commoditized work and we've sent it to countries around the world. And we're talking about replacing a lot of that with, you know, with, with robots and avatars, yep. I think you mentioned. And I think it's going to be another migration. And it's, I suppose, it's difficult for people to say, well, you know, how are we going to stay ahead as a country apart from individual businesses? In, you know, when everything's moving so fast, yeah. so people—it seems to me—in the whole industries are going to let, get left behind very quickly. I and mean, we yeah. almost need this mindset of reskilling people. Yeah, in, in, in I think it is
4: the British disease, I would call it. I'm um, being a bit sort of um, partisan It's sort of the British disease. And it's the Red Queen effect. You have to keep running to, to keep up keep ahead, keep up. I think that's the reality, isn't it, in the sense that we've got to understand these things and particularly my experience personally of being exposed a lot in the, in the in the West Coast area in the States is just the mindset is different and that we've got to encourage investment, we've got to encourage government policies, that encourage innovation and I'm sounding like I'm on a soapbox, I'm deliberately going to my soapbox at this point and saying to politicians, to Nick Clegg and others who started to hear this, they've got to get the right levelling right. And it's really the group level, I think. we have got the global policy arguments, you've got the local enablers. It's that sort of bit in the ground, bit in the middle that I don't think is very clear yet in this country. I think the good positive thing is that when you look at what's going on in the universities, looking at sort of the innovation that's going on in Cambridge and elsewhere, we, one thing we do have is a very strong knowledge economy here. I think we've just got to learn how to leverage it. And it's information economy, Knowledge economy, that's the message that we've got to take out of this room and put it out into our companies.
0: Fantastic. Has anyone else got any, any questions? No? So I think we'll leave it there. Um, thank you very much for coming. Also, thank you to Mark, Matthew, and Matilda, Catherine, and our speakers. Um, we're going to circulate the slides after this session. If anyone wants to come and ask us
2: individual questions at the end, please feel free to do so. And finally, thank you again for, for coming along today.